Oh, Lord, we thank you so much for just the opportunity to study your word here uh, with our adults. We thank you for those that are teaching our children. We ask that you'd fill them with your spirit and uh, open up our eyes to understand your eternal word. Uh, not just for the sake of having more to know, but so that we may know you <clears throat> and follow you aright and glorify your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, one of the questions that we're going to ask, it's not an easy question to ask, is when's the last time you wept over your sin? You don't have to answer that out loud. Um, but we're going to see a, a priest today, this morning, that his weeping, actually the Lord uses it to bring about significant change in the hearts of uh, the people that had returned back to Israel. And um, it's interesting how the Lord can use sometimes really stiff rebukes, like say that came from Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And, um, and then also he can use just you know heartbroken sorrow um, to have an impact on people. So what we're going to do is I'm actually going to probably skip by our review and just jump straight into our text this morning about restoring God's law. If you guys want to review last week's material, you can go back to the, they're post, they post the audios on our sermon section. So if you want to go listen to the stuff about Daniel, you can go check, check that out. See, I lost a, connection with my mouse here so I'll let that go for a second but let's what I what we're going to do is we're going to start over in Deuteronomy 7 I want to give first of all just a little bit of background to the situation that we find here in the book of Ezra and then secondly we're going to kind of examine kind of the hand of God upon Ezra that uh, that he clearly is being moved and, and led by the Lord and sensing God's power. And then there's kind of thirdly this you gotta be kidding moment where everything comes to a screeching halt. And then in God's providence, it really seems like fourthly that Ezra has been raised up for such a time as this, just as Esther was put in a certain position for such a time as this. Ezra is really the perfect guy to deal with this very messy um, sin situation in Israel. So let's start back in in Deuteronomy first and just let's get some background knowledge. And I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7 starting in verse 1 so this is the second giving of the law to the people of Israel before they're about ready to cross the Jordan and the Lord and it says when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you the Hittites the Girgashites the Amorites the Canaanites Perizzites the Hivites the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughters to their uh, your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. So you're not to marry um, these people groups. Why? Verse 4 tells us why. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. Uh, you shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, burn their carved images with fire. You are a holy people to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you're more in number or <clears throat> uh, than any of the people, uh, for you are the least of the peoples. Verse 8, but because the Lord loves you and because 
he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, uh, king of Egypt. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for thousands of generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face and destroys them. He will not be slack with him, uh, with him who hates him, and he will repay him to his face. Therefore, keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which I command you to observe them. So the people of God, you know, the big story up to this point is they've been brought out of Egypt, right? Wandered around the wilderness for 40 years, but now they're about ready to go take the land. One of the big commands is once you get in there, do not intermarry with the pagan peoples. Not because there's all these huge race differences. In fact, you know, some of the people that were there in Canaan were very close in their racial relationship with the Jews. The issue was one of religious solidarity, of, of keeping pure for the Lord and following the Lord. And so the Lord knew what was going to happen. And so he, he gives this command. And so you guys know the story. They go in. <clears throat> they take the land. They partially fulfill what was to have happened, but they allowed certain peoples to remain up in the mountains. And time marches on. And before you know it, you've got the book of Judges. And then there seems to be some, some good stuff that happens where you get the unification of the kingdom under David. And then what does Solomon do? He goes and he marries all these pagan wives. They turn his heart away from the Lord. And you've got this descent that eventually ends up in the division of the kingdom. And it's just downhill from there. The north gets taken away. Judah eventually gets taken away into captivity. One of the main reasons it's given on the pages of scripture for their um, being sent into Babylon is God's chastisement, judgment upon them because of their idolatry that began with their intermixing with the pagan peoples. So they get sent up into Babylon, as we've seen, 70 years. While they're up in Babylon, there's all these amazing prophecies that speak of their return back to the land. You're going to come back to the land. God's going to give you a new heart. You're going to follow me. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. The temple's going to be rebuilt. Um, there's all these incredible promises. And while they're up in Babylon, there's amazing miracles that happen in Daniel's life and so on and so forth. It's a difficult time. Um, but there's these prophecies. And, and you begin to see the beginning of those prophecies when the first wave comes down at the Edict of Cyrus, right? And here comes Rubabel and about 28,000 Jews back into the land, as we looked at probably about maybe a month ago. And they establish sacrifice right away. They rebuild the altar. They lay the foundation of the temple. Then they have some bad guys that try to stop them. About 20 years go by, but eventually they rebuild the temple. And so up comes this guy named Ezra. And so let's turn to chapter 7. About 50 years have passed since the first wave of Jews come back into the land. And... We see this priest, a scribe named Ezra, who describes, he's described as, as someone who the hand of the Lord is upon him. The hand of the Lord, the power of God rests upon Ezra. So let's check out chapter 7 and following. We'll spend quite a bit of time right here in chapter 7. <clears throat> So there seems to be some really neat fulfillment of the Lord's of the prophecy. So verse one. Now, after these things in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah. And we're going to skip all the way down to verse five, where it says the son of Aaron, the chief priest. The whole reason for that list is to connect Ezra to the right. You know, he's in the line of Aaron, the priests. Uh, so this is about Artaxerxes is reigning from about 474 to around 425 B.C. 
Verse 6, this Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. So that phrase, hand of the Lord upon him, there's various ways that's stated, but that happens about five or six other times in the book. And the idea seems to be that God and his providence is guiding Ezra. And Ezra, who is supposedly the author of this book, is, um, is, is recognizing God's hand upon him. Are you guys getting feedback, or is that just me hearing the feedback? You guys are okay? All right. Uh, verse 7, so, uh, so some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, singers, gatekeepers, the Nethanim, came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the what? Good hand of his God upon him. So God's providence and power. And in verse 10, we see kind of this summary statement of kind of Ezra's life up to this point. Ezra had prepared his heart to do what? To seek the law of the Lord, to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Everything that we see basically in verse 6 to 10, this is kind of a preview of the whole package of the journey. Um, this is very common in Hebrew literature to kind of you know, tell you the whole thing and then to go back and, and get out the particulars. So it's kind of a preview of what's going to come in the rest of the chapter. Um, but Ezra in verse 10 so he prepared his heart. So uh, what could that possibly mean? That could probably mean that as a, a priest that he had kept himself from being defiled, even though he's in a pagan land. He's trying to keep himself from being defiled. He's trying to stay, stay pure before the Lord, staying away from immorality, probably certain food regulations, Levitical food regulations. So he's preparing his heart and then he's seeking the law of the Lord. So he's studying it, and then he's doing it, and then he's prepared to teach the statutes. Uh, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will what? See God. So Ezra had prepared his heart to be able to see God in the word, and then to be able to transfer that knowledge to the people of God once he got back into the land. So far, so good. Then you come to verse 11, you say, here's a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest, the scribe, by the way, an expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes in Israel. And so then we get this letter that we're going to read part of. And now the, the text moves to Aramaic. So it switches from Hebrew to Aramaic. We've seen that before, right? In the book of Daniel. Um, so here's the letter, Artaxerxes, king of kings to Ezra the priest the scribe of the law of God in heaven perfect peace peace and so forth or some translations say and now I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and Levites in the realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go up with you and whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God which is in your hand and whereas you carry the silver and gold, which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, and whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the province of Babylon, along with the freewill offering of the people and the priests, are to be freely offered for the house of the God in Jerusalem, now, therefore, be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams, lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and offer them on the altar of the house of your God of Jerusalem. This is a pretty amazing development. Artaxerxes, he's given this letter to Ezra. And not only that, he's given him gold and he's also given him access to the treasury that's down there in Jerusalem to be able to buy bulls and, and sacrifices to offer up on behalf of the Persian king and kingdom. 
Verse 18, whatever seems good to you and your brethren to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, do it according to the will of your God. It's kind of getting a blank check here. Just go, whatever, here, here's, you know, it's designated for this amount, but if whatever's left over, you just use your wisdom in, in using that money uh, for the Lord. Verse 19, also the articles that are given to you for the service of the house of your God, deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. This would have been some of the articles that had been taken by Nebuchadnezzar, some of which would have come down in the first stage, but no doubt there was probably some other articles from the temple that had not been brought down, and so he's bringing those down. Verse 20, and whatever uh, more may be needed for the house of your God, which you may have occasion to provide, pay for it from the king's treasury. And I, even I, Artaxerxes, the king, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in and beyond the river. Now, beyond the river is actually a technical term for, that's what the Babylonians called the, you know, the area of Israel. They call it, in the NIV, it should say Transjordan, I think. The literal is beyond the river. So if you, if you were with your buddies in Babylon, you said, hey, we want to go to Israel. If you're a Babylonian, you wouldn't say Israel. You would say, hey, we want to go to beyond the river. That's the name of this area. And uh, so then middle of verse 21, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law, the God of heaven may require of you, let it be done diligently. So here's some of the stuff that they're able to access while they're in Jerusalem, not counting the money they're bringing with them. Verse 22, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribed limit. No limit on the salt. My kids would enjoy that. Verse 23, whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons. That seems to be kind of reminiscent that Artaxerxes has heard the stories of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and probably heard about what happened to Nebuchadnezzar being put, you know, made into a beast and an animal and running around the field for seven years. He doesn't want these types of things to happen to him. He's not necessarily a monotheist, but he's like, whoever their God is, he must be a pretty bad guy a pretty powerful guy so let's go appease him so that no wrath comes upon me or my sons verse 24 also we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax tribute or custom on any of the priests levites singers gatekeepers nethanim or servants of the house of god pretty good deal no taxes for any of these guys that are coming back down in the second stage of the return um, verse 25 and you Ezra according to your God given wisdom set magistrates judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river that's the Transjordan all such as know the laws of your God and teach those who do not know them so now Ezra has actually been given authority to create a government go down here create a government set up your officers um, whoever will not ab Observe the law of your God and the law of the king. Let judgment be executed speedily on him, whether it be death, banishment, confiscation of goods, imprisonment. So he's been given a lot of authority to go down there and establish this government. Then Ezra says, starting in verse 27, Blessed be the Lord uh, God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and beyond all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord, my God was upon me, and I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. So we see right here a, an evidence of Proverbs 21.1, where the Lord is turning the king's heart wherever he wants it to go. And this is pretty amazing, isn't it, <clears throat> that a capt a people that are captive, that the Lord turns the heart of the king in such a way that says, go back, establish a government, here's all this money, you've got a blank check, and teach your law 
to the people there. Just make sure that you sacrifice on behalf of me and my sons and our nation so the wrath of God does not come down upon us. And, um, and then so Levi, I mean, uh, Ezra begins to then find leaders. So he goes out and he recruits leadership. He becomes a leader of leader. And so then in the next chapter, he begins to, he tells us who he recruits. And, um, and then he also talks about just kind of the need um, to protect everything that, was, that they were going to travel with. Um, if you look down around verse 21 of the next chapter, they fast and they're trying to figure out how we're, they're really asking the Lord about how are we going to travel down with all the, uh, these little ones and all of this money. Um, and so in verse 24 and following, they divide to kind of div- they decide to divide up uh, the materials between 12 basic travel leaders. This is what I do whenever we go on mission trips. A lot of times I'm bringing like large chunks of cash. A lot of time, l- last time Vincent Green, for some reason, he wanted me to bring him like, I don't know, it was an insane amount of American money um, because it's a lot more expensive to change it there in the Philippines. So rather than just walk around with all this cash in my money belt, we divide it up amongst the team and then we recollect it when we get over there. So if somebody something comes up missing somebody gets robbed whatever it's not all on me right it's kind of divided up and that's that's kind of the idea in verse 24 in following is they're kind of dividing up the the loot so to speak and there is a a crazy amount of stuff commentators say there's about 25 tons of silver they're bringing down with them four tons of gold um, all the different people plus their families. And this is a 1,000-mile trip that they're taking um, from where they're at in Babylon down to, the, down to Jerusalem. So it takes them four months. You can imagine there's some planning. You can understand why Ezra's a little nervous. They fast. They cry out to the Lord. And, um, and he keeps saying, the hand of the Lord is on us. The hand of the Lord is on us. Let's pick it up in verse 31. Again, we're just seeing God's providence and his goodness so far. 31. Then we departed from the river of Ahava on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us. Again, that's the power of God, the providence of God. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambush along the road. In all likelihood, this means that there was no occurrence. It could be that he's saying that they were attacked, that people tried to ambush, but they were able to fight them back. <clears throat> Probably, I think, the better way to read it is they got down there without incident. And so we came to Jerusalem and stayed three days. Now on the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the articles were weighed in the house of God by the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah the priest, and with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. With them were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Jeshua, Noadiah, the son of Benui, <coughs> with the number of, uh, and weight of everything, all the weight was written down at that time. The children of those who had been carried away captive, who had come from the captivity, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 69 ram, or I'm sorry, 96 rams. 77 lambs and 12 male goats as a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. And they delivered the king's orders to the king's satraps and the governors in the region beyond the river. So they gave support to the people in the house of God. Life is good. Everything is going according to plan. The hand of the Lord has been upon Ezra. There's been no incident in their travel, even though they have all this stuff coming with them. <clears throat> and so you can just kind of see Ezra kind of kind of curling up on his uh, hammock after a long trip and just praising the Lord and just feeling like everything's going good. All of a sudden, there's a knock on the tree next to his hammock and some community leaders, not like the the governmental leaders, but some leaders of the community, probably some folks that are just kind of over little sections of the area of Jerusalem, knock on the door and say, by the way, 
And so this is where we get to the third point, the you've got to be kidding chapter. So look at chapter 9, starting at verse 1. When these things were done, the leaders came to me. And again, this is leaders of the community, not the, the head honchos, probably. Saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Amorites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites, they have taken some of the daughters for themselves and their sons so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and the rulers has been foremost in this trespass. Uh, The end of verse 2 is why we know that these leaders that come to them are not the head honchos. They're probably the community leaders because part of what they're saying is it's the head honchos that are foremost in this sin. Uh, they've, they've, They've gone back to the abominations, which means not only have they... Um, come together with these pagan wives, but they've actually begun to participate in some of the abominations, meaning syncretism is already starting to occur. They're starting to worship Yahweh and these false gods of the area. Uh, There's some interesting language here in verse 2. It says, for they have taken some of their daughters and a lot of you guys might have their daughters as wives, or it might say they have married the daughters. The Hebrew word here is actually a unique word that just literally means um, that they had given them a dwelling or given them a house. Uh, some commentators think that basically what's going on here is they have cohabitated with the daughters of the land. Um, Although in the customs of the daughters of this land, it may have been viewed by as a full marriage by their tribes or their peoples. And it's and the people that are foremost in it <coughs> are these leaders. Um, so this is the tragic revelation. I want you to stop right there. And let's let's turn over to uh, Micah for a second. Um, I'm sorry, Malachi. Malachi is the Italian prophet down there. What's that? Malachi. Yeah, that's right. Malachi. (laughs) It's the final prophet in the Old Testament. Look at chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Malachi is prophesying around this same time period, probably a little bit before Ezra's return. So it's a little bit... It's, it's, he's prophesying around that 50-year period between Zerubbabel the, and uh, Ezra. And I want you just to kind of notice part of what Malachi is saying, starting in verse 11. It says, Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. What institution is that? He has married the daughter of a foreign god. Right? Married the daughter of a foreign god. That's very similar to the language of 9-2, Ezra 9-2. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this thing, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and what? The wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none of you deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Verse 16. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates what divorce 
for it covers one's garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So this prophecy is going on <clears throat> during this this period. And what um, Bible historians and com commentators suggest when you assemble all of the the data is that <clears throat> in that first return under Zerubbabel, they're coming back with their wives. Um, it's 28,000 people. But there's a couple things that could be going on. One is it could be that um, there aren't as many women that come back with the men, Jewish women. Um, but one thing that we do know is that Jewish men, as they got back down into the area, um, they came back and there's already people there, right? So to get their land back and to get their property back is not so easy. But people who had ways and means could get property down in the land. How would you get property back in these days? By marriage. So you could come in and you could, you, through marriage, you could a achieve property and build your status and your financial well-being. In the book of Ezra, it's the leaders that are really accused. The people that are probably more well-to-do are accused of intermarrying with uh, the peoples back in in the Transjordan or is in the area of Israel. And so what commentators are suggesting is that perhaps as the Jews were coming back, they're bringing back wives who had been really beat up pretty bad by captivity that are older. And these Jews began to divorce their wives that were no longer had the youth that they had when they first got married. They get back to the land. There's motivations for property rights. They're looking at younger women. There's not as many Jewish women to go around and they're divorcing their wives and marrying foreign wives. Clearly in Malachi, we see that, right? Malachi, the first in chapter 11 talks about them marrying and given in marriage with foreigners. As you read the rest of the context, they're divorcing the wives of their youth. And so Malachi is rebuking them for that. He says, God hates divorce. You're divorcing your Jewish wives and marrying these foreigners and going after foreign gods. So you get here to um, chapter 9 of Ezra. Let's look again at verse 2. Remind ourselves what is being said by these community leaders. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy seed is mixed with the people of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers are foremost in this trespass. So now thirdly, I mean, as, I mean, uh, as, as part of our third point, let's see uh, Ezra's graphic response, verse three and four. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garments and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. Man, that's pretty extreme, Ezra. I mean, these people just, they just fell in love. They fell out of love with their Jewish wives and they fell in love with the pagan wives. And why are you getting so upset? Because people just fell in love. He doesn't see it that way. Ezra had prepared his heart, right, to seek the law of the Lord, to do it and to teach it. He knew what this meant. And the God, you, you got to be kidding moment comes, I think, in his prayer. He explains why this is such a big deal. Why is why is he plucking out the, the hair of his beard? I don't know that I've ever done that. There are times where I've grabbed my hair. I've been so frustrated with something one of my my progeny has done and it grabbed my hair. But I can't remember ever like grabbing my goatee and yanking, actually yanking hair or beard out. But that's what Ezra does. And so let's let's look at his epic prayer. Verse 5 and following, At the evening sacrifice I arose from my fasting, having torn my garment and my robe, and I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. 
And let's just see if we can detect both from the whole, from the, for the God, from God's standpoint, but also historically, what this really means in the mind of Ezra. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty for our iniquities. We, our kings, our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder into humiliation as it is to this day he's just reciting what happened in the captivity these are words that are very you, hear, you see it all over in jeremiah and ezekiel verse 8 and now for a little while grace has been shown from the lord our god to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg or a standing or a stake in the holy place that our god may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage that's Ezekiel type language. There's a remnant that's been preserved. God has shown his grace after we were cast off into captivity. Verse nine, for when we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now our God. What shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded us by your servants, the prophets, saying the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations, which have filled it from um, one end to another for their impurity. Now, therefore, do not give your daughters as wives to their sons nor take their daughters to your sons and never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you are our God, uh, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments? And join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no more remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. Ezra just gets it totally right on in his prayer. We were sent up into captivity because of this very sin. We're not back in the land more than 50 years and we're already doing the same thing. And so you can if you if you can get inside of the mind of Ezra, can you see why the train would just come to this big screeching halt? It's like he's he's in a pagan land. Artaxerxes is saying, here's a letter. Here's all this money. You just go. Just make sure you offer some sacrifices for me. The Lord protects them on the way down. There's no ambushes, no enemies. They show up. They offer the sacrifices. Life is good. All of a sudden, we are marrying. We're divorcing our Jewish wives, marrying foreign wives, and syncretism is beginning to happen. I don't know if you guys remember Jeremiah. He had warned, obviously, the people to turn themselves over to Babylon to go up into captivity. But the other thing he did is he warned them not to go back down to Egypt. After there's most of the people were taken up into uh, into Babylon, but then he was left behind and was hanging out with some of the folks that were left behind. They asked for a word from the Lord. He gave it to them, and then they despised it anyway. And they went back down to Egypt and he took, they took Jeremiah with them. We call that group that went down to Egypt. They're called the, uh, elephantine Jews. I don't know why, I don't know where that word comes from, but that's what they're referred to. Those people went back down to Egypt. They began to marry Egyptians. They they fell into syncretism and they just went away. They just disappeared in history. They intermarried. They began to worship foreign gods and they just disappeared off the face of the map. No doubt they just got just kind of intermixed with Egyptians and to to this day, or I, I forget how long they existed, but they're just known as the the group that disappeared, and um, and that's what 
Ezra is pretty much convinced is going to happen. I mean, this is, we've, we're like a dog that's returned back to its vomit. We're intermarrying with foreign wives. Our kids now are going to grow up. They're not going to know the Lord. They're going to start worshiping Baal and Molech and everybody else again. And uh, <clears throat> not only that, but you'd have to think that Ezra is a little bit confused because the prophecies he's heard from Ezekiel are what? The Lord's going to bring you back down into the land. He's going to take out a heart of stone. He's going to give you a heart of flesh. He's going to put a spirit in you so that you're going to want to obey the Lord. The temple's going to be rebuilt. All this wonderful stuff's going to happen when you come back. And so these are prophecies that had been made both in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel. And so to come back and just to find out that there's this intermarriage stuff going on, just had to be devastating um, to Ezra. Say it again. That's who? Jeremiah Barry. You're going to have to interpret that for me. A weeping prophet. Oh, there you go. I'm the weeping prophet. There you go. I like that. Yeah, that's pretty good, Brian. That's pretty quick. Maybe that'd be my nickname, huh? Jeremiah Barry. Um, so let's let's look at a final point here in chapter 10. And that is what I'm going to call this fourth kind of section for such a time as this. There really doesn't seem to be much hope. I don't I don't know about you, but sometimes you can think about your own life or you can even maybe in counseling or maybe situations you've seen your children get involved in. Maybe you have family members it's like sin can sometimes so complicate people's lives. You're just like, what do we do? Right? I remember years ago, I was, you know, I've been a baseball coach for a number of years, and that's given me opportunities to also do some counseling because these kids, they come in with some difficult situations. The parents find out I'm a pastor. And I just remember counseling this one family that was so blended like they had kids from multiple previous marriages and boyfriends and girlfriends and there's all this dysfunction and when you're just trying to sit there and talk with them it's just so mixed and messy it was hard to know what to say and how to counsel them um and so you, you see this situation where the weeds and the crabgrass have just gone down deep and you're just like, what do we do, Lord? But remember, the hand of the Lord had been on Ezra and he had prepared his heart to seek the Lord in his law, to do it and to teach it. He's an expert in the law and a scribe. And so let's see what happens starting in verse 1 of chapter 10. Now Ezra was praying <clears throat> or while he was praying while he was confessing and weeping and bowing down before the house of God um, and this the idea of him bowing down before the house of God the literal idea here is he was continually kind of throwing himself down almost kind of like some of the prophets like Ezekiel some of these prophets they would just kind of do weird street theater things <clears throat> to kind of get the attention of the people and so he's just continually throwing himself down before the house of God. Um, and a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept bitterly. So he's weeping, now they're weeping. There's this chorus of weeping now. Verse 2, And Shechaniah, the, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, which we're going to find out later, he's one of, his dad is one of the ones who's intermarried, um, spoke up and said to Ezra, we have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the people of the lands. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. And I don't know about you, but if I'm listening to Shechaniah, I'd be like, all right, tell me what you're thinking. Hope, what kind of hope could there possibly be when we've got all of these families that are now intermixed right children involved um, and, and by the way the word taken pagan wives is again that unusual phrase that literally means given a home to 
So it's not the usual word for married. So it's hard to tell exactly what these arrangements really were. Were these just kind of domestic, you know, re relationships? Were these, did everybody kind of have a, um, I forget what the Jewish word is for it, but basically a mistress. Um, it's not real clear. And, and part of what gives us pause is it's not the usual Hebrew word for married, you know, covenant marriage. It's they've been given a home. Um, so he says, hey, there's hope. So verse three. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives. Again, the word here put away is not the usual word for divorce. Um, the, the kind of the more literal idea is to excommunicate. Let's excommunicate, you know, stop communion with these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master he could be speaking to Ezra or the Lord there's different views on that um, and those who tremble at the commandment of God let it be done according to the law so Shechaniah stands up we haven't even seen this guy all of a sudden he stands up and says hey here's an, here's here's the idea let's put away our our wives our mistresses Let's uh, and and let's do this according to the law. Let's see. Let's look around. Who could we find who's an expert in the law? Oh, hey, Ezra, there you are. You've just pulled out your beard and your hair and you're throwing yourself down continually before the house of God. You're an expert in the law. Let's see if we can figure this thing out before our Lord. Can the Lord untangle this mess through his law? <clears throat> Verse four. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. Um, we also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. So the Lord raises up this Shechaniah guy to, to, to encourage Ezra. You've got the goods, Ezra, and, and we're willing to do what you say. And so get up and be of courage. And let's. this is going to be messy. This is going to be hard. This is going to be painful. But let's do it. And that's where I get kind of the idea here of for such a time as this. You know, Esther's job was no less messy, right? You think about what Esther had to do. Uh, as a very difficult, I mean, basically she's trafficked, right? She's trafficked by the king of Persia, but then the Lord uses sex trafficking to save his people. And here we've got mistresses, we've got divorce, we've got children, some that are probably illegitimate. We've got people in leadership who have done this in order to probably achieve land. This is a messy, tangled situation. And Shechaniah stands up and says, Ezra, you're the guy. You can, you can do this. You can help us. There is hope. So then Ezra arose and made the leaders of the priests and the Levites and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to the word. And they swore an oath. They said, we'll do it. All right, let's let's go. Verse six. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God, went into the chamber of Jehoanan, the son of Eliashib. And when he came there, he ate no bread, drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. So they've got direction, but it doesn't suddenly make Ezra feel a lot better. Like hey, he's ready to sit down and watch a football game. Now he's not eating. He's not drinking, he's, he, but he's heading to business. Verse 7, they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem. They call for a required members meeting. This is, this is not optional. Everybody must, must come. Verse 8, and that whoever would not come within three days, according to the instructions of the leaders and the elders, all his property. Notice that. Where's Ezra hitting them? Property rights. All his property would be confiscated and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. Who had given them the authority to make these kind of decisions before he ever arrived? Yeah, the kings, Xerxes, by the hand of God... Ezra, he's an expert. He knows what to do. Boom, he hits him in the pocketbook. 
you must arrive. If you do not arrive in three days, you will lose your property. That property you gained by divorcing your Jewish wives because you didn't think they were beautiful anymore. They got too tanned from being out there in captivity. You've got to come. We've got to take care of this. Verse 9, so all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. They did it. It was the ninth month on the, tw- on the 20th of the month. And all the people sat in the open square. So this is in late December, by our reckoning, uh, in the open square of the house of God, trembling for two reasons, because of the matter and because of the heavy rain. So they're trembling because they know this is serious stuff, and it's really cold and it's rainy. Verse 10, Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now, their previous stuff had been forgiven, but it's the idea here is you're like dogs who have returned back to the vomit. Verse 11, now, therefore, make confession. Literally, the idea here is worship, confess, and give thanksgiving to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land, from the pagan wives. Then all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, yes. As you have said, so we must do. But there are many people. It is the season of heavy rain, and we are not able to stand outside. For it is, um, nor is this work of one or two days. For there are many of us who have transgressed in this matter. Please let the leaders of our entire assembly stand, and let all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at appointed times together with the elders and judges of their cities until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. Could be that the fierce wrath is, is they're sensing God's wrath just from the way that Ezra has behaved. Or it could be that they're actually beginning to see signs of God's wrath coming upon them, perhaps in, in the form of pestilence. We're not really sure. Um, so, they, so they give this, they say, yes, we will do what you do, but Ezra... It's cold out here, and this is going to take a long time. There's a lot of us that we, we're going to go to divorce court, so as it were, and this is going to take a while. So let's, let's get a plan together here. So verse 15, only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this. And Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, gave them support. Now, what, did they, what does it mean that they oppose this? Um, some would say it means they oppose the whole idea of putting away the foreign wives. It would be a little unusual for there to be no other comment after that. Uh, most commentators think that what they oppose is the delay of taking care. Let's, let's take time to deal with this. These guys wanted a swift movement. These guys were the ones that were like, you know how like in leadership structures jonathan knows this you know elder board you know we have some people who like to move real slow and some people are like boom let's do it right now so <clears throat> some of those guys are like we want it now and the, and the rest of them are like no let's we got to take some time with this and so verse 16 then the descendants of the captivity did so and ezra the priest with certain heads of the fathers of households were set up apart by the father's households, each of them by name, and they sat down on the first day, the tenth month, to examine the matter. By the first day of the first month, they finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives. This is about a three-month period. So you've got Ezra and other people that he had appointed. The idea would be here is each, each guy is coming and answering for what he had done. Um, and you can just imagine... I mean, if you guys ever watch, you know, divorce court or any of these things on how complicated things get, you know, and so you just imagine we've got mistresses that are involved. Is this a mistress or is this a covenant of marriage? Is this are there children? What property is exchanged? What will this mean to the property? Um, is she converted? Because even in chapter six, verse 21, we see evidence. It's not that the Lord, it's not that um Somebody who was following Yahweh couldn't come be part of the people. I mean, we've got examples of Ruth, right? We've got an example uh, uh, in 621 where there were converts that had come down that were actually Persians or Babylonians that had come down and joined themselves to the people of the Lord. 
And so there would be probably a, uh, a doctrinal test in, in this whole thing of, of the, you know, are you willing to follow Yahweh? Or, and then if the, if the gal says, no, uh, uh, okay, you, this is your mistress. Um, your wife's dead. Will you marry the mistress who is now converted to Yahweh? You can just see how complicated sin complicates. And so, but Ezra is an expert in the law. And so God has risen him up for such a time as this. And in spite of the complications, the hope here is that if the people said, we will do what the Lord wants, even though this is an incredibly complex situation. And so what you have following that is a list of all of the people um, who had married foreign wives, all these various leaders and so on and so forth. Now, some people think that this list is just representative of the larger group. And some people would say, no, this is the complete list. I'm inclined to think that this is more the complete list. Um, and so if this is the complete list, you have basically 111 people um, out of 28,000 people, which is a relatively small percentage. You know, if you look at the percentages here, the largest offenders percentage-wise would have been the Levites. And so, um, so again, some people are thinking, no, this couldn't be possible yet. Why would Ezra react so strongly? Because Ezra knows where this is leading. This is what caused the captivity in the first place. Why would they take three months with 111 marriages? Because there are complexities here that have to do with mistresses versus actual marriages, with property versus doctrinal discussions and things like that. Does the Jewish wife, is the Jewish wife still alive? Is this a legitimate, illegitimate marriage? And so on and so forth. And so Ezra and his groups, they go through this very difficult uh, divorce court situation and then in verse 44 just like this is just the way Jewish literature and, and a lot of times the Bible rolls verse 44 all these had taken pagan wives and some of them had wives by whom they had children the end <laughs> it's like the, the Bible just doesn't like wrap things up the way we like it done in English literature it's like we want to be like and they all lived happily ever after you know yeah the closing sentence is this is this is messy. Sin is messy. There's nothing in here that tries to disguise the mess of sin. But the hope that I think we're meant to walk away with here is that no matter how messy the consequences of your sin or anybody else's sin, <clears throat> if we come to the Lord and we'll just humble ourselves and cry out to him and say, Lord, I will do what you want, then the the consequences may never completely go away, right? The consequences of David's sin with Bathsheba never entirely went away, right? He had warfare in his house to the day of his death, but he was able to humble himself before the Lord and finish up as a servant of the Lord, even though there were consequences of Absalom and so on. And maybe in your life, I don't I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> I think most of us, by the time you hit my age, you you have some regrets right you have things that you've done or not done you look back upon you wish you'd be able to change it and a lot of times you just can't unravel everything you can't change everything sometimes sometimes it just involves things that have been done unto you sometimes it involves decisions you've made that have affected other people but what we can do is take all of that mess and go to the lord and say god what do you want me to do and I would encourage you, you know, the Lord had given Ezra expertise and specialty knowledge. And I just want to encourage you that we're in the body of Christ for a reason. We're not in the body. Of, we're not just Christians by ourselves. We've been put into a body and God has given different gifts to the body. Some of the gifts he's given to this body are pastors and teachers. And um, and we have just amazing counselors here in this uh, at, at this church. And there may be very complicated situations that you're involved in where you want to repent, you want to do what the Lord wants, but maybe there's a part of you that's just been buying into what the devil says, or the devil's saying, hey, it's too messy, there's nothing you can do. No, that's never the case. If we're willing to humble ourselves, no matter how messy it is, the Lord can still work. It's not going to change the pain. I'm sure <clears throat> some of these people, when they're putting away their mistresses and there's children that they've had out of wedlock and stuff, 
They're handing them back over to their foreign tribes um, for them to go off and worship false gods. It's very, very painful. But you know what? <clears throat> the Lord brought some severe pain to those tribes, and they did not go the way of the Elephantine Jews. They continued, and it led all the way up to the Messiah that we have in the New Testament. Let me say just two, uh, one last thing here, <clears throat> and then we'll um, take a couple questions. And that is, how should we understand the concept of divorce in light of Ezra chapter 10? The reason I raise this is because it's clear that God is moving Ezra to put to move upon the Israelites to put away foreign wives, whether you regard them as mistresses or married or whatnot. There's a separation that is being commanded here. And some people will go to this historical passage and say, that's that's my support for my divorce. Um, so I want to give you I can email this out. You don't have to write all this down. I'm just going to run through this real quick. First of all, I want to say that that this is response to grave national sin. This is grave national sin that is very, very unique. It's a unique historical occurrence that we don't see anywhere else on the pages of the New Testament. And, and what seems to be part of the Lord's concern is the fact that these leaders, in all likelihood, had divorced their Jewish wives to get to the pagan wives. And so the divorce that God's most concerned about in, in most of these situations is the divorce of the first wife in order to get to either the younger or the property rights wife or mistress. Um, also, we need to remember that this is a narrative, not a prescriptive passage. Didactic passages always uh, trump narrative passages. So when you get to the New Testament, the New Testament says very clearly in a didactic passage from Paul, if you're married to an unbeliever, do not leave them. Then that's that's a very clear passage. But if the unbeliever leaves of their own accord, you should not feel bound to remain in that marriage as Paul's advice or not just advice as teaching. And so we would not look at Ezra 10 and say, I'm married to a pagan who worships a false god, therefore I need to divorce him. No, that's a historical passage, unique historical occurrence. We have prescription in the New Testament, by the way. New Testament always, right, is, is, is advancing the thoughts of the Old Testament. So you never go backwards in your theology. You go forward in your theology. It's like we're not going to all run back to the sacrificial system. Wait a second. Jesus Christ is the final sacrifice, right? We're not going to run back to the Aaronic priesthood. Jesus is the priest according to Melchizedek. We're not going to run back to Ezra 10 to justify our divorce. Paul has told us, and Jesus said, do not divorce your wives. If you divorce your wife and then she goes and marries another, you've caused her to commit adultery, right? So we have to be very careful on that. Um, there's no indication anywhere in this passage that this was meant to be normative through the times of Jesus. Um, also, we need to uh, let's see if I can read my own writing here. Um, this required Ezra's expertise to figure out the marriage divorce thing and the whole mistress thing. Um, also, I, we just said that Jesus Jesus's uh, teaching trumps these teachings. And then also, <clears throat> just keep in mind that, you know, there is the law, there is what God says in his law, but what's interesting is how many exceptions God will allow within his law. So the, you know, there's this big idea of, yes, we will put away our foreign wives, but we know plenty of examples of people who converted to Yahweh who remain in the people of Israel. And... Um, and so I guess that's just something, you know, to keep in mind as we're trying to interpret this particular passage is God. There's a pattern in the Old Testament of God saying, here's the law. And then sometimes people will appeal back to him and say, well, what can we do this? And then he'll say, yeah, go ahead and do that. And so the Lord gives the general principle. And then a lot of times it gets adjusted to particular circumstances. Um, say it again. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you have the, there's the, nobody's allowed to have any cookies after seven o'clock. Right. 
well, uh, you know, and then sometimes you make exceptions if there's a good. I just memorized four Bible verses today. Okay, I'll let you have one cookie. <laughs> um, I shouldn't say this. I, I were too late. I was going to tell you a weird analogy from Ezekiel, but um, I'll just open up a can of worms. You can go read it on your own. Can I say one thing real quick? No, I'm a little off. Anybody ever buy Ezekiel 49 bread? I should. You should never end a lesson on this illustration, but okay, Ezekiel 49 bread. Okay. Does anybody know the context of Ezekiel 4.9? Okay, so the context of Ezekiel 4.9 is, is it's one of the signs of the prophecy where God gives Ezekiel bread that is distasteful and not very pleasant, and he gives him a limited amount of water, and he says, you're to eat this bread and drink this limited amount of water as a sign of the judgment that's coming that people will not be able to have enough bread that satisfies them in water. And so you're going to eat this distasteful bread. And by the way, you need to cook it over human dung and, and then eat it. And so it just cracks me up that we buy Ezekiel 49 bread as some of this health benefit thing when the context is judgment and cooking it over human dung. And so I've been really tempted to write the Ezekiel 49 people and say, hey, how do you guys cook your bread? <laughs> you know? <laughs> And um, yeah, they, I think they have ovens. Yeah. But anyway, the whole point of this analogy is, if there is a point, is that Ezekiel appeals back to the Lord and he says, Lord, I've been undefiled for all these years. Can we not, can we leave out the human dung part? And he says, okay, cow dung's okay. <laughs> so they cook the, the bread over cow dung and he eats it that way. Um, anyway, all that to say... Yeah, so you see examples of that all over the Bible where the Lord gives the, here's the general idea, put away your pagan wives, right? But you know, during that whole divorce court proceeding that there were going to be intricacies of the situations where the Lord was going to allow Ezra to make certain decisions in the same way he did uh, according to Old Testament law and procedures. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, three months, a very complex you know, proceedings and stuff. And again, the thing that I'm excited about, I, when I first was starting to say this passage, I was like, I do not want to deal with this passage. But you just see the Lord's wisdom in raising up Ezra for this very complex sin situation and how the Lord is willing, he puts us in the body to help us with our complex sin situations. And we look to Christ ultimately, right? I am over time. You guys can beat me with a wet noodle. Um, if any questions come on up, We'll, we'll talk more about it. Lord, we just uh, thank you so much for the wisdom of your word. And uh, we see your providence in Ezra preparing him and even, Lord, just using his tears and devastation to bring a sense of devastation upon your people. Help us to weep over our own sins and to see the just even sins that might seem small to us, how that if we let them go unchecked, that they can become big. We know that there is really a devil who has a plan for our lives and it is not a good plan. <clears throat> and, um, but you are greater than he is. Help us to repent daily. Help us to see that you are there to help us through the complexities and consequences of sin. May we today just look to Christ as we partake of communion this morning. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.